From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Like the man said, pick up the phone and give us a phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Unfettered access to a professional theologian, Mr. Colin Donovan. If you'd like to uh, send us an email, you can do that as well. The email address is openline, all one word, openline at EWTN.com. Um, and uh, that's the means by which you have to reach us at this juncture of the game. Um, actually, if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you could type a question into the chat window there, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. But the easiest vehicle for you is the phone, 833-288-3986. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, as I said, type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us. And our host is he is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pre- pretty good. Welcome back. You were off last week, and I, was. I had the solo. It's a I was. We were having a, a, frightening challenge. a big old time in South Florida with... Uh, the whole family, it's the first time we have all been together. 18 of us staying in one tiny little house. That must have been cozy. It was cozy. We had a great time, <laughs> though. It was really, it was really uh, lovely, and uh, it was terrific. Just terrific. So, Colin, it's been eventful uh, on the political landscape uh, here in America with a lot of uh, interesting things that have been transpiring, and... Uh, it, some of it has caused great joy for people of faith, and some of it, at least the reaction by some individuals to some of it, has created a certain amount of consternation amongst the faithful. And um, there's a lot of different considerations that have to be made when you're looking at the public life of public figures. And what we think the actions of those who may have spiritual authority over them uh, you know, might ought to be right, but yeah. there's a there's a whole lot of of things that that have to be taken into consideration, as I said, in these situations. Uh, so just speak a little bit to those who may be uh, extremely frustrated and may feel that there are sanctions, for lack of a better term, that should be taken against uh, some of these uh, public figures that. Uh, uh, appear certainly by all means to be obstinately uh, mm-hmm. holding positions that are contrary to the Catholic faith. Right. Um, well, in in everything, and not just in this case, but in everything we do, including what you and I do in our daily life, there are always prudential considerations. Reason is our first guide in everything. We look at the circumstances and all of the circumstances. Uh, you know, if, uh, if you did something uh, evil, you're required to go take it to confession. The point at which it becomes scandalous to others and it becomes an irrefutable kind of, uh, you know, uh, manifest sin, as the Code of Canon Law puts it, 
uh, is uh, obviously a determination that has to be made. The consequences of acting with sanctions, such as interdict, excommunication, or whatever, is a consideration that goes into it. Uh, the, the common good of the church, that other people will get the right message that certain things are not compatible with being a Catholic, a Christian in general even, uh, that's certainly a consideration. When all of these things come together, then the person in authority has to make a, a judgment. And prudence is going to be the first guide of that. But I think some, and, and weighing up all of those different aspects of it, whether good comes from from the case or from, you know, sanctioning somebody or uh, greater evils come from it. Now, then there is sort of the... Well, and really, unfortunately, in our day and time, the sheer volume of it is a problem also, because if you if you want to start slapping things on folks that are publicly doing things, po- folks that claim to be Catholic that are publicly doing things contrary to the church, man, that's going to bog down the system because there's a whole mess of them. Well, and I think that's where you have to look at what are the signal actions that uh, the church can take in such cases that become a general warning to everybody. So let's look at some historical examples. One that is often thrown as an historical example in the face of Catholics, at least, by the secular world and uh, even uh, segments of the Church, is that when uh, Adolf Hitler came to power, that uh, the, what did the bishops say? What did they do? What did the papacy do? Now, in fact, the, the, at that time, the Secretary of State, uh, uh, Cardinal Pacelli, uh, was very upset with, uh, with the development of Nazism in, in Germany, uh, and he made his feelings known. And the Pope of the day uh, published a letter to the German people addressed to them about the evils of, of racial uh, hatred and so on, uh, not directly addressing anybody in government, but pointing to the evil itself. And so time going on, although Hitler was ostensibly a Catholic, baptized a Catholic, not a practicing Catholic, if anything, he was a neo-pagan who accepted the Germanic deities. Um, this is certainly true of the SS, as historians know. Uh, but, you know, the, the whole Aryan mythology was of this kind that was not compatible with Christianity. So there's no question of the value of an excommunication or an interdict or something like that with Hitler. But we have to ask, was it, was it a, would it have been a prophetic action? Beyond the judgment of prudence, would it have been a prophetic action? And we know historically the church has been blamed for not doing it, although it would have been a waste of time for the, lar- for the largest part. So I think that is the, the choice that somebody in authority has always, always has. Do the strict obligations of prudence to the purposes of the common good or the disciplining of a person of whom there may be some hope of, of, of reversing their, their moral course and their personal choices, whether it's regarding abortion or gender ideology or racial discrimination, whatever the, whatever the evil is. Is there good in using those kinds of tools for the salvation of the individual and for the public witness that it would have? And so I think the question anyone in authority has is sort of, is the raw prudential question, is that convincing that this has any value whatsoever? And the second question has to ask, and this would be the working of the Holy Spirit, I think, more than anything, is the prophetic question 
witness worth doing, even knowing the consequences on the, the, the person in authority, the bishop or the pope, as the case may be, is a prophetic witness worth it. I know in World War II, they had the danger, of course, that Germany would invade the Vatican. And of course, there were you know, things like that. So th- there, are, can be his- there can be historical circumstances that argue against a particular action, whether in the past or in the present. Beyond that is the prophetic witness called for. And we know that our Lord in his own life never lacked prophetic witness, never lacked the calling out of public sin of the most, of the most guilty kind. He was patient and merciful with the sinner and the lost person who didn't know the truth. But with those who ought to have known better, he was frank and even condemnatory, as only he could be because he knew the, their human heart. But that was his well, prophetic— and he, and he had a love for them that we can't he imagine. A, can't imagine. Is a prophetic witness the action that is needed in a particular historical moment, other than simply the raw prudential judgment that this is going to do any good whatsoever? And I think that's where we are with public Catholics who use the Catholic name and use their Catholicism with all kinds of specious arguments for their behavior and what they're doing— Uh, but in the end are fully in with the program of the secular world uh, regarding population control, regarding abortion, regarding all the other evils of our day. And so, you know, again, is it prudential enough, or are, are we reaching the time when only the prudential witness will, will, will be of any benefit to anybody? thinking mostly of those poor Catholics who are among those totally confused by, you know, by the historical moment and and the excuses that are made for grave evils. And it probably should be noted, too, you know, a lot of people say, why doesn't the Holy Father do something about this? Well, with regard to a timetable for anything like this, you know, the principle of subsidiarity has to play into the Pope's prudential judgment. It, it does. And again, if you take the situation of Nazism, Pius XI and Pius XII proceeded stepwise, um, but their condemnations of the evil were quite clear throughout. And, uh, and I think in the abortion question, which is what we're talking about, the church is going to step up and help the women who might be considering, as she always has, And so this is another area where we can't just speak words, but we must, with our actions, prove that we love everybody, born and unborn. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question... Call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. A brand spanking new book hot off the presses from EWTN Publishing, St. Thomas Aquinas Rescues Modern Psychology. The Catholic Answer to the Theories of Sigmund Freud by our good friend Father Brian Milady, host of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. And Father Brian examines the nature of a healthy Christian emotional life and ultimately provides the Catholic answers to the problematic theories of Sigmund Freud. And you'll learn to advance from spiritual infancy to maturity. 
You'll also learn how it, uh, how it is through struggle that we become holy and the power of hidden acts of patience and virtue and much, much more. St. Thomas Aquinas Rescues Modern Psychology by our good friend Father Brian Milady, available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Open phone lines for you right now. For Colin Donovan, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. First up today is Michael in Spokane, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Michael, you're on with Colin Donovan. Well, thank you both on this Friday afternoon, and thank you, Colin. <clears throat> this is about saints. Um, uh, saints had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there saints which are noted for their humor? Oh, that's a that's a good one. John the twenty third. Oh yeah, certainly. You know, there, there there's a great story of him being carried in. I actually saw him carried in on the on the on the great chair, where my mother and I, as when I was a child, obviously in that era. We went to Rome on a cook's tour from England to uh, Europe, and we stopped in Rome, and we went to Castel Gandolfo, and uh, he was brought in for the Wednesday audience on his great chair. You know, and he's he's been noted for a number of, of humorous things, and he said, one of which he was asked how many people work in the Vatican, he, Vatican, he said about half. <laughs> and the other one was he raised the pay of the people who... Uh, who carried him on the chair because he was a little bit on the large a side, a little corpulent, <laughs> and so he doubled, I think, their salaries, which is a humorous <laughs> action of itself. So, you know, humor, um, you know, I'm Irish, and we sort of tend to think that God is Irish on, the, on that account because we're, we're a funny people on many levels <laughs> besides being humorous. But uh, I think the best of human qualities are founded in God, and I think it's clear from the, you know, our own lives, if you look back, that God himself has a sense of humor, that he leads us in many ways, and sometimes they're downright humorous. You know, we want something, and it isn't, you know, we're convinced it's what we need to get, and we get something else, and we find it so much better. And, you know, in a way, he he, he loves us so much, and when you love your you you do poke fun at your at your friends. You know, Jack and I poke fun at each other all the time. Now he deserves it. I not so much, but I know that he loves me. And uh, uh, when he does, even nonetheless. And so, uh, you know, when Just you keep love, your hands you... off my hockey team. That's all <laughs> That's I ask. Right. <laughs> so I think the answer to your question, Michael, is yes. The saints, if you look deeply in any of their lives, they have a sense of humor. Uh, because that's that's a positive thing of human nature, and all good things about us are founded in God himself. St. Lawrence is the patron saint of comedians and of comedy. Uh, and this I did know. I, I knew there was a, a saint that was associated with, with laughter and, and things like that, mm-hmm. and I looked it up and it came back to my memory. St. Philip Neri was known for being a rascal uh, a bit a bit of a practical joker even yeah, and right. and and I use this many many times and it's really a humorous comment sort of along the line I just mentioned uh, you know where God does things is that great line of St. Teresa of Avila when uh, traveling in a cart and the cart was upturned in a creek and she fell in the water and of course got soaking wet and she looked heavenward to the Lord and said if this is the way you treat your friends <laughs> 
It's no wonder you have so, so few. few of them. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I think God has a sense of humor, and he wants us to as well. Well, you know, another story comes to mind. I, we were parishioners in, in, we spent 12 years in Des Moines, Iowa, and we were parishioners at St. Pius X Parish. Mm-hmm. And Pius X, uh, when he was a child uh, in the p- local parish school, it's reported uh, that young Giuseppe Sarto, who would become Pius X, uh, the bishop visited, which was a big deal, and fresh fruit was quite a luxury back then, and the bishop brought an apple with him and allegedly asked the children, I'll give this apple to anybody who can tell me where God is. And as the story goes, Giuseppe responded, Bishop, I'll give you two apples if you can tell me where God is not. So <laughs> He got the apple, I I'm take I'm sure it. he did. <laughs> and, and the papacy. <laughs> Eventually, yes. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. We appreciate the phone call. This frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Andrew is watching us on YouTube. He says, if Eastern Orthodox and Catholics believe the exact same thing in the end with Mary's sinless nature, dormition, etc., why would it be bound on the faithful to believe one theological expression, such as the Immaculate Conception versus her sinless nature happening at the Annunciation? Uh, well, because one of those has got to be true and the other one can't be true. I mean, if, if it's either going to be one or the other. And so time going on, uh, our Christ promised the apostles in his great uh, Last Supper prayer, uh, uh, chapters 14 through 17 of John. And one of the things he promised is the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. And it does that under the guidance of the magisterium. There are different theologies in the church. The Dominicans have one way of expressing things. The Franciscans have another way of expressing things. There are things in the theology which not, is not part of the corpus uh, of, of uh, doctrine which the church has affirmed as revealed, and things which are not contrary to the corpus of things that the church has affirmed as revealed uh, certainly may be held. So for ex- an existing such questions such as this would be uh, St. Thomas never want, uh, never addressed the question whether uh, what would, would God have become incarnate if man had not sinned, whereas Scotus did. And so Franciscan theology holds that whether Adam and Eve had sinned, there would have uh, our Lord, because of his love of creation and love is man in particular, would have become man. And therefore, uh, something the church has affirmed, and that is from all eternity, God in willing the incarnation willed the, willed the Immaculate Conception. And if you think about it, the logic of that is certainly true, that Our Lady, uh, had, had Eve not sinned, we all would have been born immaculate, as Eve was created immaculate, as Adam was created immaculate. And because she didn't sin, it wasn't uh, for Christ's nature to be untainted. She had to be as well. So in either choice, Mary would have been immaculate. The church merely affirmed that because what did you have? You Over time, you have people rejecting Mary's prerogatives, the things which flow from her choice by God to be the mother of the Word. And so historically then, this, if you weigh, the, these crises occurred more in the West with the Reformation and post-Reformation than they did in the East, in the unity, which was generally a combination of religious and ethnic unity of peoples, 
where they didn't have those crises. And so in the West, under the guidance of the papacy, the theology developed. And once it's affirmed that something, uh, the form of expression is correct and true, then that has to be held because what happens in most of these cases, whether it was the early Christological formulations or the later Marian formulations, is that denying it implies a certain error on the question. So in this case, you would say, well, the error would be to think that Mary was only immaculate from the moment of her Uh, of her conception. What about John the Baptist? How was he able to leap in the womb of the Blessed Mother when Mary came? Was he immaculate from the womb? Did he have original sin taken away from the womb because of the presence of the Redeemer? Is that how Mary also was delivered? You have to make a decision regarding this. Well, the Church's decision is made. And so Western Catholics are bound to believe this doctrine of the Immaculate Conception because this is where the thinking, the arguments, the defenses of, in the West led to this conclusion and affirmed by the papacy, which has the power to confirm the brethren in the faith. The East didn't have that benefit, but yet they've very faithfully held the testimony of the first generation, of the patristic generation, those that came after. So that's a solid basis of a of of a sound Marian theology, but we have a little bit more because of the presence of the papacy in the Catholic Church, which has that authority and that office to confirm the brethren in the faith, and it has done so in these questions. And and it it should also be noted that many of these things uh, that maybe kind of developed in the second millennium Mm -hmm. by you know, the Orthodox, you know, these are, many times, these are things that were always and everywhere believed to be true, and just weren't stated as such until they were challenged. No, the, the in the East, for instance, Our Lady is the Panhagia. She is the All-Holy One. Well, what does that mean? Could she have been unholy up until a certain point? So, th- the emphases in the language is different, and it follows the more mystical approach of the East, which is less likely to make positive statements about a revealed truth than it is to uh, affirm in a certain negative way what is not true. And so in doing that, it preserves very closely that sacred tradition of the first millennium. Uh, and so in the West, with our positive theology, which has the danger of rationalism, as Protestant sh- Protestantism shows, as even some of our modern Catholic theological theories show, a, a danger to get so wrapped up in your own mind trying to defend an opinion you already hold uh, that, you know, it goes, it goes off, the ba- off the rail. Well, this is basically what happened with Protestantism, this rationalistic idea undergirded by with only the Bible as a source and not tradition and not a, a, not a papal office to affirm or deny the, the truth of a particular postulation. Uh, but in the, in the East, they sort of hold tightly to what they have and, and guard it very uh, zealously, and that's, that's also a good thing. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. I know it's hot out there. But pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 
888-382-2985. And if you are outside of North America, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 and you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. Wide open phone lines, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still some open lines at 833-288-3986. Before we go back to the phones, Diane would like to know, she was wondering if you have any theories as to why some priests have the bells rung during the consecration of the Eucharist and others do not. The ringing of the bell is uh, certainly something that can be done. It's not obligatory. If you had no bells, you could celebrate the Mass. So it comes down to the prefer in the case of a parish, uh, the, what, you know, the preference of the pastor. Um, I, I would say that it probably comes down a little bit to culture as well. I remember I was visiting a priest that, uh, uh, in Mexico that uh, lived in the house I lived in in Rome. And he said, well, come on down. And he, he was a priest of the Diocese of Tlaxcala, which is just a little east of Mexico City. And I happened to be there on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, and he was the pastor, and he was celebrating uh, the Mass there. And I was quite surprised that at the consecration, uh, they not only rang the church bells, but there were men outside uh, throwing firecrackers. So there was this idea of an overwhelming celebration, not only of the bells of the church, but also the, you know, the using the firecrackers. I don't know how common that is in Mexico, but it was a way of expressing the momentousness of the, uh, of the a, a sort of an incarnation. Christ is already God and man, but he now becomes present uh, in our midst. So uh, the bells are a beautiful touch because bells represent uh, human joy in a way that, uh, you know, we recognize. We use bells for precisely that reason. You ring, when, when the wars have ended in the past, they would ring all the church bells in the town. When the Pope was elected, they ring all, it's a sign of joy and happiness and so on. Uh, so definitely something to be favored, but it, again, it's not something obligatory. So for whatever reason, it's the uh, decision of the celebrant or the, or the pastor if there's a particular practice in a parish. And, um, uh, so it's not, not obligatory. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Sue in Victorville, California, watching us on YouTube today. Sue, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin. Hi, good morning. Well, it's afternoon. I'm a first-time caller. I had a question. I believe um, it is spiritual authority. Um, you can, when you're saying your rosary or <clears throat> hold up your rosary and say, Dear Blessed Mother, Celestial Queen, with this rosary I bind my children I bind my children to your immaculate heart. 
or your grandchildren. I understand you can't do it for friends or something, mm-hmm. but I was wondering, can I bind my husband or myself? Well, I, I, I think many fathers of family and mothers of families, you certainly do that as you go for your children. Uh, I would hope you when you know, when you, when you make your preparation for communion, you can't make it for your children, but you can pray for them and uh, you can pray for their guardian angel to guide them to make a devout communion. Uh, in this way, uh, I'm not sure what you mean by binding, because frankly, that's not a term that you is common to Catholic theology. I think the evangelicals and others use it. Uh, I, th- I think use a simpler language that doesn't suggest that you're, uh, you're, uh, you're exerting, your, you're practicing your authority over them but you can't determine the results that God will do. And that suggests that your prayer is accomplishing what you ask God to do. This is the trouble with many of the deliverance prayers, which have become popular, is that people take uh, sort of authority over the enemy and his minions, uh, which only belongs to priests and, in certain circumstances, only belongs to priests designated by the bishop. So by the same logic in this case, I think, you know, you pray for your children, you ask their guardian angel to lead them in the right path, to make good devout communions, uh, to watch over and protect them. You ask the Blessed Mother to do that. Uh, And avoid language which suggests you are commanding the saints and the angels and God to do it, or that simply you're saying it uh, means that it is accomplished. No doubt it is because you, you have authority. Uh, when you bless your children and you send them off to bed or you send them off to school, yes, that's an exercise of authority, of natural authority. But again, even that does not determine the outcome in the way that a priestly blessing is uh, is determinate. So I think you recognize the, the limitations of that, and you do what is called... Uh, impetratory prayer. In other words, it's a plea to God, to our, to the angels, to Our Lady and the saints, uh, to watch over, to do, you know, to, uh, to, to light, to guide, to, to rule, to rule and to guide. So uh, that, that's what you're trying to do. So as I said, binding language is not something that is really common to a Catholic usage. And I think it's therefore probably wisely avoided. Does that help, Sue? Yes, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for the phone call today. But the basic idea she has is correct. I mean, the the authority of the parents over their children, uh, and not to appear too patriarchal here, but there is a particular role of the man in this as the head of the family, established by God as such. And so, but also of the mother with respect to the children, and I think that that has to be uh, exercised, and a good way of exercise is by prayer, by blessing the children, uh, and doing the kinds of things that she's talking about, but in a proper and truly Catholic way. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Justin writes in, there are a list of five promises for the completion of the 12-year novena from St. Bridget. I know the one-year novena magnificent promises were not supported by the church. Apparently, the magnificent promises of the 12-year novena were approved by Pope Clement XII. Can you verify this? 
Uh, not sitting here in the studio. Um, one of the reasons was that that the the, the Saint Bridget revelations, if it's part of them, I I say suspect that that is doubtful. Not because Saint Bridget might would not would speak a lie regarding what was revealed to her, but rather that the church doesn't know the credibility of the claims that this is St. Bridget. And this happens in a lot of such cases where historically long ago things, you take the prophecies attributed to Malachi. We don't really know that they were attributed to Malachi. The church gives no credence to them for that reason uh, because they appear hundreds of years after the saint was a bishop in Ireland. So for things like that, the church is very careful, and I know in the 1940s the Holy Office did say with regard to the, the St. Bridget prayers and the promises attached to them. The prayers, I believe, are orthodox in and of themselves, but whether the promises were rightly given to St. Bridget is the things which the church doesn't necessarily credit. Uh, and I, without Knowing the fact, I'd suspect that that's the case, whether you're alleging five, twelve, or twelve hundred uh, promises. Yeah, the the prayers themselves, uh, if nothing else, is a beautiful uh, exercise right. in reflection yeah. uh, on the, exactly, the and they're contained the in many prayer books. Uh, any indulgences, of course, no longer apply because of the changes in that, uh, and the, certainly the promises. The church has said, "Well, wait a minute, we're not affirming those." Uh, Frank writes in, why is the sacrament of confession not given more importance when many people receiving the blessed host may be committing a sacrilege? Many people we see are living in adulterous relationships. There are few in the confessional line, but there are very long communion lines. I would think Catholic people who are interested in the new Eucharistic revival would also be concerned with the revival of the sacrament of reconciliation. I think I would question the premise of his question. I don't know that I agree with the fact that emphasis is not placed on that sacrament. It's, I, I it think, is in the circles I run in anyway. Well, and I think that's it. It depends on in what circles you run. Uh, I don't know. I, I certainly would know in my experience traveling around uh, in my youth to different countries and being in different parishes and that a quite variety of of emphasis on the sacrament of penance. Uh, and you saw you saw that in the confessional lines on Saturday, and to some extent, uh, that's probably true as well today, even in in good parishes. Uh, remembering that nobody nobody should think that if they're in the state of grace, they have an obligation to go to confession before going to communion. They do not, and so uh, a lot of that point of view has been wisely and correctly, uh, you know, put down over the years. Uh, on the other hand, I think what is probably existing is the laxity of the opposite of that, and that if you are in the mortal state of mortal sin, there will be rare situations in which an individual, especially if a layman, since laymen don't have to celebrate Mass and may not have access to, a priest may not have access to another confessor, there may be relatively few circumstances when going to... Uh, not going to communion would be a profession of one's mortal sin guilt. And I remember the rector of the seminary that I attended uh, said that he encouraged the uh, seminarians sometimes to not receive communion 
precisely for this reason, and that is to break this idea that today we have, if you're at Mass, you go to communion. Really, it ought to be put that if you're attending a Mass and you're in the state of grace and you're going to come up and receive devoutly and attentively, if you're distracted and in a terrible state, it will, won't do you any good. Maybe that's the time, not the, the occasion when you not, should not go. Since you can't meet the conditions which the church, even in her canon law, says to receive devoutly and attentively. So I think that, that there certainly needs to be catechesis on that. I would be very surprised if most priests who are enthusiastic about the Eucharistic renewal that is underway uh, would not also be doing that because it's a necessary part of the preparation for receiving the Holy Eucharist, uh, receiving it worthily. So I imagine it is quite variable, uh, variable by not just by dioceses, but by, by parishes, uh, but that all those uh, of goodwill will see that they individually and the parish and the diocese, there is this intimate connection between being in the state of grace and utilizing the sacrament of penance and receiving communion worthily. And the opposite risk, of course, is the one that St. Paul mentions, that he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks uh, to his own condemnation. Uh, so we do have to be careful of that. So I'm hoping that it will be part of the catechesis related to the Eucharist, and I would doubt that that won't be the case. Uh, Linda is in Midland, Texas. She's a first-time caller today, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Linda, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was curious about the birth of Mary mm -hmm. and her early childhood, and why did God choose her to be the mother of his son? Okay, regarding the first part of that, uh, we know very little. Uh, certainly Scripture doesn't tell us anything. There is a document from the second century called the Proto-Evangelium of James, which the Church does not accept as a, uh, as, a, as a scriptural document, as an inspired document, which nonetheless, the, there are certain facts in there, such as the names of her parents, Joachim and Anne, uh, which uh, seem to be of historical uh, knowledge because they are used not as if they were revealing something, but as if they were well-known. So even though the church doesn't expect, uh, doesn't accept the inspiration of that Proto-Evangelia of James, doesn't mean that there can't be true historical facts in there. There are also purely mythical things like Jesus, uh, you know, bringing a bird back to life that fell to his death and, you know, gave life back to... But there's no evidence that Christ performed miracles outside of those necessary to his mission and to witness in such a way that they were signs of who he was and the authenticity of what he was teaching. And so all of Jesus' miracles uh, go to that. They're not superfluous. They're not. So... Uh, we know about her birth in early childhood. Some of the mystics have spoken on this, uh, which has, of course, not the credibility of revelation, but the human credibility of the church approval of different uh, saints. Uh, Venerable Mary of Agreda wrote uh, considerably on this, although there's some uh, dispute over the authenticity of parts of her writings. Uh, generally, uh, I think she, she certainly recognized as a venerable of the church, and there are elements in there that are, uh, that are probably helpful. 
They're certainly pious reading. They're not, they're not doctrine, and they're not necessarily historically true. That's, the, that's about what we can say about it. As to why her, it sort of goes back to the point I was making earlier. If, And in this, I am a Franciscan and not a, t- a Thomist. And that is that from all eternity, in knowing and choosing that Christ would become incarnate, he also chose the mother. Uh, I mean, his plan had to be perfect. He didn't choose half a plan. He chose a whole plan that so that if Adam and Eve had sinned, not sinned, she would have been his mother, uh, as it is, of course, we know that she, they did sin. But he didn't preview the, the choice of the angels and man. He gave us our freedom. They weren't deterministic, although he knew what the choices would be. And so he chose the mother in choosing this incarnation of the word. Uh, and that's all, all we really know about it. It was the will of the Father from all eternity. It was accomplished, uh, you know, the Immaculate Conception was accomplished by the Holy Spirit, just as the incarnation of the Word was accomplished uh, by the Holy Spirit. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, they say one of the most important things that you can do as a parent for your children is to read to them when they're very young. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember... Uh, one of the fondest memories of my lifetime is when we were in seventh grade, our homeroom teacher, uh, Mrs. Scanlon, whenever we would have a homeroom period, which wasn't every day, but it was, uh, she would read us a chapter of Where the Red Fern Grows, and over the course of the year mm-hmm. read us the book, and and we were as captivated as seventh graders as we would have been as kindergartners or preschoolers when she does that. We've got a program on Sundays. Sandra McDivitt reads stories um, of faith and inspiration um, called Stories from the Heart. You can hear it Sunday mornings at 9.15 Eastern Time. I can't tell you how many times I have pulled into my garage when that show was on and have sat in the car until she finished <laughs> reading the story. <laughs> they're, 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 she's got a gift for it, and, and they're fabulous stories. This week, a young doctor who comes up, who comes upon a small child on the side of the road, and the small child changes his life forever. That's the premise of the story to the, this week on Stories from the Heart with Sandra McDivitt, Sunday morning, 9.15 Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Jeannie writes in, my struggle is to understand why an impotent person cannot be married in the church. I struggle with this because it doesn't seem to be the lack of marital relations or being open to children. As Mary and Joseph got married, fully understanding they were not going to consummate the marriage and thus not have any children together. Therefore, it seems to be the ability to have marital relations is the issue, as we can assume Mary and Joseph had the ability to have marital relations and just chose not to. Why is the ability to have marital relations important in a sacramental marriage? Well, it's because it's uh, and it may it's what val- it what seals, as it were, any marriage, natural or sacramental. Uh, the the union of charity between Our Lady and Joseph was certainly a unique case in that respect. Um, for the Church, a marriage is truly made by the vows. It is consummated by the first marital act. Uh, and so it's assumed that no one will undertake marriage who hasn't that as its purpose. 
so that's going to be would be the case. Remember that Our Lady, in a sense, uh, they had that as their purpose because uh, they had, you know, intended marriage, but then she accepted this obligation, and Joseph confirmed it by his choice. So the difference is that in the natural order, the consummation of the marriage is done in a certain way, uh, and any uh, all kinds of other things. If if a marriage which was not capable of that could be accepted as a a, a true marriage, then there would be no reason for the church to say that two people, regardless of their sex, could could marry. Then it's just a friendship. This is what a friendship is. It's two people, two men, two women, a man and a woman, who uh, have this filial love for each other, this or this uh, philo love for each other, uh, and they they show that in the way they the enjoy, enjoy each other's company by their discussions, by their actions, but not, of course, by sexual behavior. And so that's that distinguishes friendship from marriage is this orientation to uh, to having uh, relations. And so couples ought should have that. Now, impotence may be something that is discovered after that, and that's the church understands that. But if one is incapable, for instance, by because of an accident, and it's a known fact, uh, then marriage is uh, is not capable. Part of the reason would be that concupiscence is str- a strong drive in human beings. And the risk, a, a greater risk of extramarital uh, use of the sexual faculty might derive from that. So it also re- respects our human nature and the weaknesses of our human nature. Next up, Chicago, Illinois. Carol is another first time caller listening on the EWTN app. Carol, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Hey, Carol. What's your question today? Okay, my question is. Um, do Mary have, did she have original sin? And I guess because I'm asking, by her being the mother of Jesus, I would assume that she don't have any sin. But everybody else that came into the world had sin because of Adam and Eve. Correct, yes. Mary, because Mary was to be the mother of the Lord, if you just think about it sort of logically, there are scriptural grounds for believing this, but let's just start from the logical grounds. Mary took, Christ took his human nature from Mary alone, from no other person. Now, what do we say about human nature? Uh, Human nature is, because of original sin, is subject to the prince of this world. In other words, baptism redeems us from his his kingdom and, and orients us to the kingdom of God. So are we, are we prepared to accept that Our Lady was somehow under subject to the prince of this world, the devil? And that's what we would be saying if she had original sin. The other aspect of this is, uh, the, the biblical aspect of this, is that in Genesis, because of Adam and Eve, they are promised a redeemer, and the woman is spoken of. Eve was the woman, the mother of all the living, Scripture tells us. There's another woman that is mentioned. It's certainly not Eve. It's the mother of the Messiah. He whose heel will crush the head of the serpent. 
And so Mary had to have the worthiness, not by her own merit. An original sin can't be not received by us by our own merit, obviously, because we have no control over the moment of our conception. She received it not because of any merit of hers, as a gift from God in view of the Redeemer, as Pope Pius IX said in, in defining what was long held in the church, this doctrine that from the moment of her conception, Mary was free of original sin. Not just free of the original sin, but all the penalties associated with that. And that is subject to concupiscence, which we just talked about, uh, a disordered desire for the things of this world, the pleasures of this world of all kinds, uh, uh, freedom from the pride of life, freedom from the, you know, subject to the devil, all of these things which came with original sin and made us subject to him and subject to our own flesh, she was free of, not by her merits, but by virtue of who was born of her, and from her alone received his human nature. So it's the perfection of Christ's nature, God and man, which tells us that his mother was specially preserved from original sin. And that's the logic of the church, which certainly in the last thousand years was very explicit, or at least the last 800 or so, explicitly understood by the church is you can't have a mother who is subject to original sin if she will give her nature, our nature, to the Redeemer. So I think that's, the, that, that's logically true, and Scripture supports it. Also, not just in Genesis and her relationship to the promised Messiah as the woman, which Christ confirms by using that title of her uh, throughout the Gospels, but also by what the angel says to her. The particular Greek word used there, which the church translates as full of grace, means that she's perfected. Grace is perfected in her. Nothing is lacking in her. And as we know, original sin is a lack in us, a lack in us of the divine life and the divine grace. She had that, and she had it when the, the angel began to speak, uh, which means she probably had it and logically would have had it from her own conception. And that's what the church has concluded. Your little quip earlier in the show uh, caused Hope watching on YouTube to ask if you were a secular Franciscan. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm Benedictine and Dominican trained. But I think they're, the Mariologists, are many of them are Franciscans, and I think they've got these points right. <laughs> well, we hope that all of you have a great weekend. We'll pick it back up again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.